Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. The main fuel of banking is trust and so each time there is an event like this, you are kind of breaking this trust because people start questioning, you know, for example, in what we just discussed, you can really question the quality of banking supervision in the US, for instance. Bank managers take crazy risks because they are too greedy. You know, that's not extremely surprising, but seeing that, you know, supervisors did not see this coming, that's more of a surprise. And so I think there is some loss of trust in the quality of the entire, you know, banking ecosystem. And, you know, very often I'm asked, you know, do you think there is too much regulation or too little regulation? I think it's, no, it's, you know, what is the right regulation? So just, there are always issues that we can fix, you know, and we just need to improve regulation like we need to improve, you know, all the time, every, everything we do, basically. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Trium Connects. Over the last few months, we have seen a number of U.S. banks either fail or come under increasing amount of stress. This has not been confined only to U.S. banks in that we have seen similar sorts of pressures lead to the sale of Credit Suisse here in Europe. Now, what is interesting to me is that banking relies on it uses as fuel confidence in its own system. If people don't have confidence in the banking system, the banking system fails to or stops being able to operate. In fact, if people lose faith in a single bank, this can and often does lead to runs on other banks, banks that in many ways are completely healthy. It's just that they've lost the faith in it, their own depositors about the viability of the business. And because it all relies on the faith of the depositors, the very fact that people lose their confidence means de facto that the business is not viable. So this self-fulfilling loop begins to play out through the whole system. And these loops kick off because of the fundamental nature of banking. The financial institutions make long-term investments but need to have liquidity if and when their depositors say, we want our money back. But it's already all tied up in these long-term investments. And this intertemporal difference is the key structural piece that makes this contagion effect possible. We have, of course, known all about this kind of contagion effect for a very long time, and thus we have put in all kinds of regulatory framework in order to either detect before a bank is going to fail and thus set off this contagion effect, or quickly move into a situation where a single bank fails and then start to try to react post hoc in ways to stop the spread of the contagion. So when a bank fails, it's obviously primarily the fault of the management of the bank, but it's also a signal that the regulatory framework did not work efficiently enough to identify what banks are going to fail a priori and therefore avoid this idea that they have to post hoc uh, make things right. In addition, if they don't make things right at the beginning, so you can see that the lack of being able to contain the contagion is also a failure of the interventionist system that we have in place to stop these kind of processes. So in many ways, not only are the bank failures in the U.S., interesting in their own right, they do tell us something about the current health of or the functioning of the regulatory environment. And so in this episode, we explore how the banking regulatory system is kind of supposed to work and what the current crisis tells us about its health. I can think of no one better to join me in a discussion of these issues than Jean-Edouard Colliard, an associate professor of finance at HEC Paris. Jean-Edouard has been at HEC since 2014, and before that, he worked as an economist in the research department of the European Central Bank. His main areas of research are the regulation of financial institutions and the microstructure of financial markets, including topics such as financial transactions taxes, over-the-counter markets, bank capital requirements, or the European Banking Union. His research has been published in leading finance and management journals, including the Journal of Finance, the Review of Financial Studies, the Review of Finance, and Management Science. 
where he is the associate editor. I really had a good time with this conversation. I learned loads about what was going on, and I really hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Jean-Edouard Colliard. Jean-Edouard Colliard, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, it's a great time to have you on because just this morning I was reading about uh, another bank in uh, the U.S. having trouble named PacWest. And so this seems like a, an ongoing crisis and having, having you on the show to help us understand exactly what's going on. So thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Now, when I think about these things, I am, I am, uh, you have forgotten more about bank regulation than I will ever know. Um, so I just like to try to break things down very simply. So to just to try to get my head wrapped around what's happening. So if I think about just the very basics of banking, what is a bank? So a bank is set up and I bring my money to the bank and I might bring my money to the bank because I want a physical place that it's safe to keep it. So it's maybe safer than keeping it in my house. If my house burns down or I get robbed or something like this. And then on top of that, from about I, th I think historically from the late 1600s, I could earn some sort of interest on my savings. So I would deposit my money in a bank. The bank takes my money and then it lends it out to other people. And so essentially the bank is just a debt creator it, 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 or maybe it, it, it invests in insurance or some other, some other asset. And then as a depositor, then I'm taking a risk because the bank's never going to be just holding my money in a vault. So if they make a lot of bad investments or maybe the bank gets robbed or they have fraudulent management or something happens, I lose my money. So I'm, I'm earning a little bit. I'm earning safety, which is something, and I'm earning some interest. But in exchange, I'm taking on risk as a depositor. And bank's profit is just the difference between whatever interest they get paid and on the deposit and whatever interest they, they get from their, from their debt. Is that so far, it seems reasonable? Perfect. Actually, okay. you know, very good. Okay. <laughs> so the problem is, of course, if everybody wants their money out at once, because it's all lent out to other places, no matter what the health of the bank, even if all of their investments are super solid and there's no problem, the bank's going to fail because it never has enough capital to pay back the people. Unless it's just a big vault, but then the money's not doing any work and it's completely unproductive. So it seems to me that the whole system which when you think about it, it seems a bit strange to me. The whole system relies on this subjective belief that as a depositor, I can get my money back when I want to. And if we all believe that at the same time, it's a fact. But if enough of us don't believe that at some tipping point, it all goes to hell and the bank goes bust and everybody loses their savings. So the, the 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 fuel of our whole financial system is based on this subjective psychological feeling that at any moment I can get my money back out as as a deposit. So so, so far so good. Does that make sense? That that's perfectly true. Actually, uh, we have you know two gentlemen got the Nobel Prize in economics last year for explaining exactly this. You know, so if you had been a bit earlier to the party, you would have gotten the Nobel Prize too. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, but thank you. That's very kind of you to say. So, so what I've what I what what that makes it seem like to me is that given that this is kind of a subjective thing, we would expect occasionally this kind of confidence to collapse, and so through time we see over and over again kind of periodic collapse of the banking system, and when this happened historically what happened to the depositors funds i mean did, did is the individual taking all the risk in that situation what what happened historically in those cases were people just wiped out right so i mean historically <clears throat> there were many different periods and of course you know this varies over time across countries and so on and so what you just described you know this this issue of confidence this is really at the core of banking, this is what we call maturity transformation, okay? That we have a bank that has illiquid assets and at the same time offers a very, very flexible liability contract, so a deposit contract where you can withdraw your money anytime you want. And so as you just described, you know, if all of us, we lose confidence and we want to withdraw our deposit before it's too late, which is called a bank run, the bank, because it has invested everything in loans to companies and to households, it cannot liquidate those things 
in the short run or maybe at a huge discount and then the bank you know cannot serve <coughs> the depositors and they were right to run to run to the bank okay so that's exactly what you what you described this model <coughs> actually you know the this model appeared at the end of the 18th beginning of the 19th century so before that a lot of banks they would just invest in very very short term uh, assets so they would be uh -huh. a little bit like money market funds today if you want they would invest in commercial paper facilitate transactions uh, these kind of things but they would not really lend long term uh, to companies oh because they recognized this difference in the time frame that they had to have the equity is that right um yes probably they did also you know the distribution of wealth in the economy was extremely different so you know in order to finance long-term projects you could rely on you know very rich people who would take you know equity risk or, or subscribe to long-term bonds this kind of things okay in the 19th century so the the modern model of banking appeared with this with this maturity transformation and in in some periods and countries you had exactly what you described so you know this this runs driven by lack of confidence. Uh, the best example of this is, is the free banking era in the in the US where you had exactly this. And indeed, you know, there was a lot of volatility uh, for banks. People were monitoring very, very closely what the different banks were doing. If you had, you know, a certificate of deposit at a bank, it would not be accepted uh, by others if the bank had a bad reputation and so on. So this was a world, you know, in which uh, depositors were extremely worried actually about uh, about bank health and in which a lot of bank runs uh, happened, okay? And then, uh, you know, because of what you described, there were some cases in which indeed, you know, some banks that were not particularly risky and, and whose assets were not particularly bad uh, ended up in, you know, defaulting uh, on their depositors. And gradually, you know, there was this idea that maybe we should, that this is, you know, clearly inefficient. And so one way of solving this would be to insure the deposits. This appeared, for instance, in the U.S. Um, actually, even before World War One, at uh, local levels, at the state level, and the big change was in the 1930s. The, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So that's after the banking crisis of the of the early 30s, and that was, of course, a complete game changer because now, basically, you know, the government is telling you, okay, there is no reason to run on your bank because whatever happens to the bank. There is a fund out there that guarantees your deposit, and this fund, you know, ultimately is backed by the U.S. government. So you know, you're safe. There is no reason mm. to run to the bank. And because of this logic, you know, of trust that you described before, if I know that everybody else understands that their deposits are guaranteed and that there is no reason to run to the bank, then I'm not afraid of this type of scenario. So I have no reason to run to the bank myself then bank runs don't happen. And basically, we solve the problem. This is something that, you know, people in regulatory circles, they love this story because it's one of the few examples where it looks like we can solve a very deep economic problem with mm -hmm. regulation at zero cost, okay? We just set up an insurance system so that people don't run on banks, then banks never default and we never use the money in the deposit insurance fund. So it's just you know, a perfect example of regulation, coordinating people on the right equilibrium, if you want. And when that regulation came in, were, uh, normally uh, industries resist regulation. So d did banks at that time, did they have to be forced to do this? Or were they like, wow, this is such a great solution. Thank you very much, smart person for whoever came up with this. <laughs> um, that's a good question. If you think about it, so the... Um, I think what happened at the time is that basically if you are a bank now in most modern countries, you have a deal. The deal is we insure your deposits. This is something which is fantastic from the perspective of the bank because now you know you have this ability to get a lot of leverage and all your creditors are protected by the government. So they don't ask for a high risk premium or anything. So that's, you know, this is extremely, extremely valuable that you know increases a lot the franchise value of the bank so i'm you know i don't have the historical evidence in in my head yeah. but I, I would guess they were pretty happy with that so the, the cost and that's where it's a deal if you want or a bargain is that uh the cost is that well you know the government they understand that potentially you know now there is government money at stake if uh, something bad happens to your bank 
So the cost of this is that now you are also subject to a lot of regulations and to mm. supervision by different authorities. I'm sure we'll also discuss that um, later. So that's one possibility. We have this, you know, official banking system in which you have both deposits that are insured and a lot of regulation. Okay. And the other option could be shadow banking or other forms of financial intermediation mm. in which it's the opposite, very little regulation but then in principle, not covered by deposit insurance. Yeah. So here's my here's my question. And, and again, forgive me if this seems simplistic, but this perfect regulatory response, right? We're going to have insurance. The banks will pay into the insurance pool. Then, then if there's a bank that gets into trouble, um, it, it can be covered. And because it can be covered always, we're never going to have the problem. So, so the confidence comes in. Mm -hmm. But most insurance works because the risks are uncorrelated, right? If I issue health insurance, if you get sick, it doesn't mean necessarily that your neighbor is going to get sick or somebody else down the street is going to get sick. And so my payouts are going to, if they're uncorrelated, then I can run it, I can predict it, et cetera. But what we said before is bank runs are almost by definition correlated, right? Because there's contagion effects. So even though we have this kind of edifice of that it's an insurance product and that banks are paying in, it's kind of misleading because if there's a serious problem, it's going to hit everybody at once. And what what while we call it an insurance product, it's essentially the state that's saying, We're, don't worry, we have you covered. Is, is that right? Or is, is it a, just an illusion that it's an insurance product? It's... It's a very good observation. So, in you know, I think there is the theory and the practice. So the the and I'm a theorist myself. So you know, so the theory is that indeed you know it's supposed to be insurance. So you know what we worry about is the risk that some isolated depositors they become crazy and they run on their bank for no good reason, and and so the and so for this type of event you know insurance works you know because this is really insurable. Uh, there is no problem with that. And of course, what we really, and actually a lot of those things happen. I mean, there are many bank defaults in, in the US in particular, there are many, many banks. And, you know, in the past, every year, there would be a couple of small banks uh, defaulting. And sometimes because there was some, some bank run, I mean, those things happen. Of course, these are not like the main events we worry about. As you just said, you know, what we worry about is what happens if there is contagion and so on. So I think deposit insurance Part of it is the idea is precisely to avoid contagion, right? By having trust in the entire banking system. But what we are witnessing at the moment actually is that when people lose trust either in the deposit insurance system or in the regulatory framework or in the supervision framework or in the banks and so on, then you have this kind of systemic events in which you can have bank runs at many banks at the same time. And then you are perfectly right in principle this is much more difficult to insure. That's where you need um, to move, I think, to intertemporal insurance. That is, you know, you need uh, the deposit insurance fund to build reserves in years where no systemic event happens, to use those reserves when the events happen. And probably because then, you know, the stakes become extremely high. So if you want this to be really credible, you need, you know, the backstop of the government that has to say, in the case, the fund cannot pay the depositors, I will use public money uh, to do that. So that's okay. that's necessary because we reach the limits of, of what is insurable uh, privately. So this insurance mechanism or this quasi-insurance mechanism, um, is that uh, that's the way it works in the US with FDIC? Um, just broadly, if we look across the world, do we see the same pattern? And interestingly, in Europe, where you have... Uh, a, a common currency, obviously, is there some sort of European-based insurance on deposits that are that is different or additive to the individual insurance that countries have? Right. So, um, so there is deposit insurance in pretty much every country. Uh, the the main exception being the Gulf countries, but there the understanding is that if something bad happens to a bank, the government is going to bail you out. Anyway, so other than this, you know, in most countries, you have some deposit insurance mechanism. Then the exact details vary a lot across countries. So there are some databases, actually, that, you know, try to look at the details of each fund. Some of them 
uh, more private solutions, others are, are public solutions, the funding varies, the, the insurance premium that banks have to pay uh, varies. So a lot, you know, a lot of things are different across countries. In Europe, uh, it's an interesting case because, well, you know, an insurance system, so in principle, you know, the more people you put inside the system, the more insurance you have and the better this is for everybody. You create more risk sharing. Yeah. In in the EU in particular, you know, we have this, this specificity that we have banks that are huge relative to their home countries. And so, you know, if, if a very large French bank in particular had a problem, it would be impossible for the French deposit insurance fund to uh, to play a very significant role and, and the French government, I mean, if, if the problem were really, really serious for the French government, that would also be uh, quite terrible. And actually, during the, the euro area sovereign debt crisis, this played a huge uh, role around 2012. Yeah. The reason was, the, the reason being that uh, markets were anticipating that a lot of European banks would be close to default, that they would have to be recapitalized by their national governments. But then the national governments would spend a lot of public money, their deficits would increase yeah. a lot. So their debts would become much riskier. So the price of their debt would decrease. The price of the bonds would decrease. Who was holding the bonds? Well, mostly the banks. So this made the situation of the banks even worse and so on and so on. And so at the time, there was a very serious discussion about trying to have a common deposit insurance mechanism in, in Europe. So to basically to, you know, do resharing at the EU level, because, you know, if there is a big uh, Italian bank that fails, you know, for Italy, that's very complicated, but for the whole EU, that's manageable. So we could create yeah. a European equivalent to FDIC very much in the same way that the US started with a state level deposit insurance schemes and then moved to a federal deposit insurance scheme. Unfortunately, this was not uh, implemented, so we still don't have this. So we have uh, national deposit insurance funds uh, in the EU. What we have is the single resolution fund, which is a special fund that is at the EU level and which can be used in particular for systemic banks and for the largest events. So there is a bit of mutualization at the EU level, but most economists you know, would like to see more of that. Okay. So if I get this right, overall, across different banking regulatory regimes across the world, we have some combination of the following. Bank, we will help you with the risk of, of having bank runs. We'll give you some sort of insurance. In exchange for that, you're going to have to follow some regulations that we put into place because now we have kind of skin in the game. We want to make sure that this this is good, going to be okay. So in a, in, a sense, in a sense, when we have a bank failure or more than one isolated bank failure, it's some failure of the system, right? So either the, the regulatories failed to detect that this was going to be a problem mm -hmm. because you always have the lender of last resort right as a central bank, but they only want to invest into something that is kind of viable. It's it's not a rescue of bad, bad performing. So when we when we have bad performing and the and the central bank says no, we aren't going to give you any money because it doesn't look like you're you know a, a, a good bet, a good business. So we can see these kind of as failures. So maybe we can look at the current crisis in the US, this mm -hmm. kind of slow motion crisis of mid-sized banks failing looks like every month or so, every five, three or four weeks. And see what's happening there, and, and try to get down to what what systemically is is the problem. So, let's start with the problem at, at uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Can you just walk us through exactly what happened there, the role that Treasury bonds played, and and what what went wrong there? What was it was it a, was it a problem of regulation? Was was it a just an unforeseen kind of perfect storm? What mm -hmm. what happened with with SVB? Okay. That that's a complicated question because the you know the Federal Reserve published a very very long report about all the things that went wrong in this story. So I, I try to make it short. So in terms of you know what the bank was doing basically. So that that's very simple and well understood. So this bank, you know, was well had many types of assets, but in particular it had a, a big position in uh, you know in, in long term uh, in long term bonds with a fixed rate. And then what happens we when interest rates increase as they have done recently 
is that the value, the market value of these bonds decreases a lot. Okay, that that's important to understand. So in particular, you know, a lot of people uh, now are panicking and thinking, oh, but you know, actually, I have a lot of money in bond funds or whatever. Does it mean it's risky? So it's important. No, it's it's not risky. Okay, so when you have, uh, you know, a U.S. Treasury, and I know with a ten years maturity. Unless the U.S. government defaults, which you know can happen those days, but used to be seen. You, know, you never thought like, that you would be saying that. Like that but... <laughs> exactly. Unless these kind of things happen, you are going to get exactly the amount of money you were promised. So from that perspective, it's totally safe. Okay, but now if interest rates increase, the value of this future flow of money changes, hmm. and so if you are, you know, uh, if you save for your retirement. This is totally irrelevant. Okay, so this is still completely safe. Now, if you are a bank, and the particularity is that you don't invest your own money, you invest the money of your depositors. Now it's a different story because what's going to happen is that if you uh, buy a lot of treasury bonds at an interest rate of zero percent or a little bit above zero percent, because when you do that, your depositors ask for zero percent. Okay. Yeah. When you do that, that's okay. If interest rates increase, what's going to happen is that your treasury bonds, they are still going to pay a little bit above zero. Yeah. Now your depositors, they are going to ask for 1%, 2%, 3%. So you are bleeding cash basically every year. Okay. Yeah. And there is nothing you can do about that. So, you know, if you sell those bonds, well, it's too late. You are just going to realize huge losses. And so yeah. that's why the market value of these bonds decreases. So basically the point here is that if you buy those things on leverage, now this is very risky okay it's the strategy that is risky in a sense not um, the assets and so for silicon valley bank you know this is this was exactly what happened so they had this uh, long term bonds but not only you know also uh, mortgages with a fixed rate or loans to companies with a fixed rate you know whatever is is fixed with a high maturity is going to have yeah. uh, this problem on the liability side, they had a lot of deposits. What was very specific for Silicon Valley Bank, actually, is that they had a lot of uninsured deposits. Uninsured deposits, typically, you know, the interest rate uh, varies much more with market conditions because these people are more uh, mobile. They are not insured. So, you know, they care a lot about mm. the stability of the bank. And they are much more likely to run on the bank because they are not protected sure. by the FDIC. So we are back to the 1930s. Okay, so the... So that's basically, you know, what happened. It's a very, very classical uh, bank run problem. It, it's so classical, actually, that in the early 1980s, there was the savings and loans crisis in the US, which was a huge crisis with, at the end, you know, 1,000 uh, banking institutions had to be uh, wound down. And it's it was exactly the same story in the same type of environment with the Fed increasing interest rates, the market value of uh of of fixed rate uh, of fixed income securities going down and a lot of banks you know not being able to serve their depositors it seems imminently predictable yes right that it that it that it was i mean you you had to live in a world where you said interest rates are never going to return to historical rates that we've somehow entered into a new world they're always going to be super low and that's the only way that the business model that SVP was using seems to be able to be viable. So how was this not seen by the regulator? So that's still a mystery to me, right? So especially in the US where, you know, I would hope that if you are trained as a regulator or supervisor, at some point you see the savings and loans crisis. And so you should exactly. have this in mind. Um, so there are several reasons. I mean, first, you know, the first responsibility is with the management of the bank, right? So I don't want to blame the regulators or no, the sure. supervisors particularly. Uh, and the management of the bank, I think here there was really an issue of what we, you know, in our jargon, we call uh, risk shifting, which is that, you know, you take this bet, maybe, you know, at the time when those bonds were purchased, it was not clear you know how quickly interest rates would would increase again and and maybe you know it it was understandable that you did not think about this risk or whatever then afterwards you know once once the shock happens it, it's kind of too late and then you are in the situation in which in a sense you know the bank is almost already dead so you know if you do the right thing which is to reduce this risk hedge change your portfolio and so on that's the right thing to do. But actually, for the shareholders of the bank, 
this is going to be, you know, they are going to have a very, very low return. Typically, the incentive of the bank in such a case and the incentive of the yeah. management of the bank is to double down on this bet and take even more risk with the hope that the situation is going to improve. You know, it's, it's a bit like a zombie bank, but it's, yeah. Yeah. it's called gambling for resurrection. You can double down. Sure. If things improve, you make a very high return. If they don't, well, then the bank dies, but you're already dead. You're already dead, so why not do it? Exactly. And so supervisors, of course, you know, their job is, you know, the reason why we need them is precisely for this type of situation, that there are cases in which we know that the bank, manage the bank management has a huge incentive to double down on risk-taking instead of, you know, hedging and, and reducing their risk. And that's precisely when we need bank supervisors to step in. We also need them to act very, very quickly. And again, in the US in particular, and to me, that's what is a bit surprising is that, you know, I, I would have thought that the US was the place in the world in which those things were the, less, the least likely to happen, maybe. Because after the savings and loans crisis we discussed, there was the FDIC Improvement Act, which actually gave a lot of powers to regulatory authorities in the US, insisted on the fact that, you know, problems had to be spotted very early, uh, that uh, regulators had to be very proactive and so on and so on. And so when you look at what happened with SVB, the, 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 what is still mysterious to me, even after reading, you know, the reports of the Federal Reserve and everything, is that it seems that the, the supervisors who were, you know, inspecting the bank, talking to the management and so on, they saw the problem relatively early, actually, because, you know, it was very obvious. <laughs> And they asked the management, you know, to, to take countermeasures, to change things and so on. The management did very little and not much happened to SVB. And so that, that's very, that's very surprising. So in right. principle, you know, in principle, if the Federal Reserve tells you, you know, there is something wrong with your bank, we, we, uh, we ask you, you know, to take immediate action to remedy this and to explain to us how you are going to, to go out of this problem. This should be taken very seriously. And, you know, my prior was that the management would react very, very quickly and, and they did not. Uh, so so that this is strange. So yeah. I think that's that's one of the big mysteries in this uh, in this crisis. OK, well, maybe we'll find out one day. Um, but um, so the government decides to intervene um, for whatever reason. I mean, as you said, most of the Big money here was uninsured because it was in deposits over the two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, I think it's interesting to note that the median deposit in the U.S. is still less than six thousand um, dollars, and uh, the average, even with the skewed distribution of super wealthy individuals and in very large deposit, the average is still only fifty thousand, around fifty thousand. So we're we're not talking about everyday bankers here. This is not a retail banking problem. Um, but uh, but still, even though this was people who were uh, uninsured, um, made the choice to made the choice to put their money in SVP, were monitoring it because they were worried about it. Um, the government intervened. What was the fear that drove them? I mean, what I guess that's that's a loaded question. Why did the government decide uh, to intervene in this case? Right. So I think like in many insurance contexts, you know, the, so this is a case in which you provide partial insurance. Okay. But it's a bit like for health insurance, you know, you have a deductible. And so that's a bit the same idea in a sense uh, to, you know, prevent moral hazard and give better incentives to large depositors in particular to not, you know, lend their money to crazy banks and so on. And so, you know, ex ante, it makes a lot of sense to do that. Ex post, you know, it's always, it seems always better to reimburse people who were uh, simply unlucky or did not pay attention and so on. So that's, you know, a very familiar tension in economics that ex ante, you want to commit to a lot of things mm. that, that to give good incentives. Ex post, you know, you want to renege on all of that because, you know, you consider that people were just unlucky or they have been, uh, maybe they have been given bad advice by the bank. So as you said, I don't think these are very wealthy people. A lot of these deposits are actually deposits by companies. And so, you know, it, a lot of these companies, I mean, again, I think it's their job to manage their money and, and to do risk management and, 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 and cash management. Uh, but probably they suffered from, from bad advice, right? So mm -hmm. if you are, you know, a startup, you just got, you know, funds from a VC and, you know, you might have a lot of cash for a couple of, you know, even years. Yeah. The, you know, you may not have 
you know, uh, an expert in cash management at the company because also maybe not so many people have a finance background, which is bad. You should always have somebody with a finance background. But anyway, uh, then, you know, it was the job of the bank to give advice. But the bank is very conflicted because, you know, they are not going to tell you, oh, sure, you know, you should diversify across banks. You should put money in money market funds, not everything in deposits. Instead, you know, they are going to tell you, oh, you should do, you know, very big deposit with us. We are very safe. We serve a nice interest rate. And of course, for the bank, this is much more profitable. So it's actually an interesting question that is not even, there's not a lot of research or, or policy uh, reflection on, on this, actually, I think, on, you know, the role of um, advice to companies in banks and cash management and so on. This is a topic which is perhaps not as sexy as others and it's been a bit neglected and I think it's actually very important. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and in this case, it, it was the problems multiplied, as you said, because it seemed that the these type of perhaps undereducated depositors were in a specific industry. So mm -hmm. a lot of uh, early stage startups um, in the Silicon Valley kind of ecosystem. And so I think, at least I read in the press, that some of the motivation from the central bank or from the Fed intervening here was that if they let this one bank fail, it, it, the, the damage wouldn't be distributed across a large number of industries. It'd be concentrated on one industry that happens to create loads of, uh, of employment in mm -hmm. high earning sectors. So, um, so that, was a, that was a kind of compounding of the risk in a sense. Um, so it was the first to go. So so and the, and they intervened because one, it was kind of, in a sense, too big to fail in that specific industry. And they also, as you said, ex post, they didn't want to punish people that were maybe uh, poorly informed, and it made sense to to do it in this case. Then then Signature Bank comes along, First Republic comes along, now PacWest. So it seems to be like this kind of slow rolling crisis. So. If it was if it was peculiar to SVP, and we intervene there because look, it's happened, and we and we want to make sure we take care of people. What what is the fuel that's driving this these more bank failures? And is it something? Are they in the same kind of classic risk problem, intertemporal risk problem that you describe with SVP, and they're just kind of now being discovered? And so it's a general regulatory failure across those banks, or is it more like a a classic contagion effect. People are just kind of freaking out because they have their money in a in a in a kind of regional bank, mm -hmm. and they're worried about it. What what's going on here? Right. So <clears throat> I think what's happening here is it goes back to what you said at the beginning that you know the main fuel of banking is trust, and so each time there is an event like this, you are kind of breaking this trust because people start questioning. You know, for example, in what we just discussed, you can really question the quality of banking supervision in the US, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, observing that some bank managers take crazy risks because they are too greedy, you know, that's not extremely surprising. But seeing that, you know, supervisors did not see this coming, that's more of a surprise. And so I think there is some loss of trust in the quality of the entire, you know, banking ecosystem, including deposit insurance, regulation, supervision, and so on, right? Which is Which is very... Uh, important. And then what happened after SVB is that actually the couple of, of days, you know, after the failure of SVB, uh, market participants, they started, you know, like traders, fund managers, and so on, they started basically sending, you know, charts to each other saying, oh, you know, I just looked at what are the banks in the US which are the most similar to SVB in terms of share of uninsured deposits or in terms of unrealized losses, on their uh, securities. And, and very quickly, you know, people identify some outliers, you know, banks that look, you know, very extreme and, and that look very much like SVB. And now, you know, now that this trust is broken, you are in this kind of gray area where everybody is thinking, okay, you know, if we all stay put, all those banks are fine, but if a lot of people start withdrawing their deposits, then it's better that I do uh, the same. And here, you know, in, in terms of game theory, you have this issue of focal points, basically. Yeah. Some banks, you know, stand out as being like, you know, that anybody, if you have a chart and you have like two points that stand out, you're going to think, oh, okay, everybody is going to 
run on those banks simply because we, we see them you know, on one corner of the chart. And this is exactly what happened. And so then market participants started you know, to bet against those banks. So this is reflected in the stock price. Then the stock yeah. price decreases a lot. This is in the national news. Everybody sees that the shares are worth much less. And so the depositors think, oh, okay, it means that everybody is convinced that this bank exactly. is going to default. So everybody is going to run and you have this kind of self-fulfilling um, <clears throat> dynamics. And so I think this is largely what explains okay. the, the, the bank runs we had after. In in Europe, interestingly, it was a little bit uh, different because the European system is, is, is much less transparent, I think. So you have less information about... Uh, the bank, so it was not really possible to do the same charts to know exactly how much uninsured deposits there are in different European banks. So we know it's much less than in the US, but we don't know exactly uh, the distribution. And so then, you know, but this focal point idea was also at play that people thought, okay, what are the banks that really right. did very poorly in recent years? And so people started naming, oh, Credit Suisse, oh, maybe Deutsche. And, and you know, but this becomes a kind of psychological game where you try to guess what's going to come to the mind of, of others. And every, you know, miscommunication or every, you know, bad uh, bad press event or whatever can, you know, put yourself on the, on the wrong on the wrong side, basically. On the, it's fascinating to me, you know, you have finance who is is probably the most kind of mathematically sophisticated. Uh, we have all of these uh, very uh, big models, and it all rests in the end on people's kind of feelings about things. Yeah, um, and true. so it's all psychology in the end. Um, and then it and then it get, runs out. And I'm uh, the the problem with these focal points, of course, is once one or two players drop off the the chart, new focal points emerge, right? So there's no natural endpoint to the process, and so so you have a problem. So so here's the question to me. So let, let's let's think about. Uh, systemically what happens here because it seems to seems to me this and again this is a it's just my trying to kind of simply think about this i'm if i'm a bank my creditors are my depositors and then i package these products debt and i sell it on so we have a partial insurance system where it takes my risk in some ways away from the bank and says okay you're taking from my my deposit my my kind of uh, uh, debtors my the people I owe money to you're you're protecting them, so even more money flows in because hey there's no risk to it, and there's no risk to me I don't take the risk I'm not the bank so I'm getting this kind of few free freeish money, and then I'm free to take all kinds of different risks because I don't I don't have to face my depositors I mean in the in this sense, and it seems with this kind of slow rolling crisis. What the bank, as you said, ex post behavior, the ex post behavior over and over again is signaling to the market, look, the, the government in the end will cover everything. So any of the residual risk that's left over after this insurance fund, the central government is now saying it has that in mind. So essentially, I'm if I'm a bank, I'm a business that's getting funds, my, my, my creditors, in a sense, have all of their risk covered from a third party. And that seems to be a huge moral hazard to me because then I can be really risky with their money because I don't have to pay them back if, it, if they go wrong. It, do I have this wrong or is this just seems like a crazy system? No, you're, you're right. So, and again, you know, there is the theory and the practice. So, so this is a bit of a crazy system that is true that once you have deposit insurance, you lose what we call market discipline. That as, as you said very, very well, you know, you just have a lot of creditors who now don't care about what you are doing. As a, as a finance professor, you know, and I think a lot of uh, MBA students remember their corporate finance classes, you know, my heart bleeds when I think about this because you are going to generate a massive uh, failure of the Modigliani-Miller theorem. Okay, it means that now you know I'm, I'm completely breaking the link between risk taking and, and cost of funding. Okay, so mm. that's, that's that's really a very bad thing to do. Um, but this being said, regulators are, are not are not stupid. So in principle, what should happen is that your deposits are insured, but you are charged a deposit insurance premium. Okay. And in an ideal world, so, you know, Jean Tirole, for instance, made this point very clearly with, with Mathias de Vatripon, the, in an ideal world, you know, this deposit insurance premium 
should be equivalent to the interest rate you would have paid to uninsured creditors. Yeah. And so the job of regulators and bank supervisors is basically they should act as very sophisticated uninsured creditors of the bank. So the job of the people at the FDIC or at the Fed is to look at what the bank is doing, to look at the risk that the banks are taking and to charge a deposit insurance premium, which is higher when bank risk taking is higher or to say, well, look, we want you to be less leveraged and then we are going to decrease the deposit insurance premium and so on. So as to restore, if you want, the normal functioning, the normal corporate finance um, uh, results we have for, for any uh, firm, okay? So that's the theory. This being said, uh, for reasons that, to be honest, I never quite understood, this is not really the way that regulators think about this issue. Uh, very often because, you know, they are very influenced by legal considerations and so that the, they don't necessarily have a very, very clear view of the finance theory, you know, behind uh, the whole system. So just an example, you know, if you see that as a, as really an insurance system where we are trying to price the risk of the bank. As an economist, I like this because this is a price system. Okay, I'm telling the bank, that, well, look, you know, do whatever you want, but if you take a lot of risk, then the insurance premium is going to be super high. So if, if you think this is worth it, well, you know, go on, no, no problem. But, you know, just know that your cost of funding is going to increase uh, massively, okay? Uh, instead, very often, deposit insurance premia, so until relatively recently, they were not even risk-based, okay? So there was no, basically, you know, what you would like to do is that if the bank takes less risk, it's encouraged by a lower risk premium. Okay, hmm. so nowadays in most countries we do that a little bit, including in the US, but not that much. Okay, and even actually only uh, yesterday, the FDIC said, "Oh, but you know, because of the SVB events, we lack money in the fund, so we are going to charge more to the surviving banks," which goes completely in the other direction. So what this means is that the banks that were safer and survived they are charged more exposed to compensate for the costs, okay? And so this happens to other insurance companies, right? So if you have, uh, I don't know, if you have a car insurance company and there are a lot of accidents in a given year, you are going to increase premium the year after, but that's going to fall on the guys who are driving well, actually. So that's, in terms of, in terms of incentives, I think it's bad. And, and typically, uh, this, this insurance premium and the world deposit insurance system is not really designed with, uh, you know, moral hazard and risk taking, in, not really with the idea of pricing the risk that the bank uh, is taking. And actually, because of this reason, we are not that far from the world. It's not that the bank can, uh, you know, uh, get a lot of deposits for free. So you have to pay the deposit insurance premium. But the problem is that the risk sensitivity of this premium is way too low relative to what it should be. It'd be, I was just going to say, it'd be like selling health insurance, but charging the same to a 55-year-old, heavy-smoking, heavy-drinking, non-exercising, had five heart attacks in the past, and you're going to charge them the same as, you know, somebody that's super healthy. Something like that. It's a, it's a very good, uh, it's a very good illustration. And then just, and, just yeah. to have another example, which is important at the moment in the, in the European Union, actually, we have, you know, the single resolution fund I mentioned before. And now, you know, the, the fund is saying, oh, you know, we have enough money, so we don't need to charge a premium anymore, which is something the FDIC did in the past uh, as well. And so, you know, that's as if the health insurance uh, company said, oh, but you know, we collected so many premia last year and actually things were good. So this year it's free, you know, so that's very generous. But in terms of incentives, this can be quite bad, actually. So it leads me, I mean, it leads to a question that, and maybe this is, there's no answer to this, but there seems to be a lot of kind of irrationality in the regulatory environment. If you and I sitting over a conversation in an hour can see that this is this is bonkers, there's there's some really crazy things here that that aren't being priced in the system. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that we aren't uniquely intelligent and that we're the only people that ever thought of this. So it seems like there's 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 two possible causes to this problem in the regulatory environment. One 
it may be that the world has just become too complex, right? It's things are too interdependent. There's too many unforeseen kind of things that can happen. And the regulators are doing the best they can, but you know, there's no real way to anticipate these things. And the only thing we can do is kind of insure ourselves up and just hope that whatever happens isn't too bad and then deal with the the aftermath. Right. And and uh and and that's just because things are too too complicated. We don't understand them anymore. Or there's a systematic problem with the regulators, and either they don't attract the kind of best talent, uh, maybe they don't attract the most sophisticated people. But again, I don't think that it's that seems to be unlikely to me, given that these aren't like super complicated things to understand. What is this? Is this a symptom of? the political interference of powerful financial sector uh, a powerful financial sector that likes the system as it is because it's taken away a bunch of their risk they're free to continue to make a lot of money and they would rather have a regulatory environment that doesn't punish them for taking risk that's a tough one <laughs> so you're right i mean you know if if in a conversation we can see a lot of a lot of issues like this you know it feels a bit like uh, you know in france we have this cliche of people at the cafe sure you know, if i were the government I would <laughs> exactly do this that in the uk you would do it at a pub i guess but uh, yeah it. yeah uh i i think so i think there are several several explanations uh here so first okay in in, in no particular order maybe okay um the one big complex so i think the complexity of regulation is something which is which plays a big role here so i have some research actually on the complexity of regulation uh one thing to keep in mind is that we live in a world in which financial systems are very interconnected and so all these regulations they need to be discussed internationally and that's a, a major source of of complexity but you know, if you think about it, so for instance, you know, now we have Basel three, three and a half, extremely complicated rules. Okay, uh, like more than six hundred pages of of rules. But these rules are just guidelines. The actual rules that are implemented are much more complicated. But why is this? Well, it's because we want to design, you know, some minimal rules for globally important, for you know, internationally significant banks for a very, very large and very heterogeneous group of countries. And they all have to agree with each other, okay? Because there is no international banking police force that can force countries to adopt a particular regulation. So it has to work by consensus, okay? So you need to have, you know, 30 uh, central top central bankers or, or, or people from regulatory authorities agreeing on a common framework of course, you know, they all have different policy objectives, different problems in their countries, different political pressures. So they agree on something that is bound to be way too complicated, probably a bit inefficient with some things that are a bit random and so on. Still, they agree on something. And that's quite remarkable, right? So if, if actually, if you compare this, you know, in banking regulation, we have had an, an international agreement since um, Basel One. In the 1980s, if you compare to, you know, environmental regulation at the global level and so on, we are, you know, 40 years ahead of everybody, right? So that's, that's still quite an achievement, actually. So I don't want to, to play down, you know, the, the achievements of, of regulators here. But that's a major issue. So we end up with a system which is very, very, very complicated because, you know, it is the outcome of a very complicated uh, bargaining process. And I think because of this complexity, it's very easy for people to, to completely miss the big picture. So I think our discussion is simple because, you know, I'm a theoretical economist. So, you know, I don't know the details very well. So that I can focus on what I think are the major things to think about. If you talk to a regulator, a supervisor, or a banker working in, in regulation, you know, they will know the details much yeah. better. They would focus a lot on those details. And these details are super important too. But the problem is that if you focus too much on the details, well, sometimes, you know, you forget, but what was the whole idea behind this and, and why are we doing this and so on? And so yeah. that, that's a very natural uh, tendency, right? So the more specialized you are, the easier it is to, to forget a little bit about uh, the bigger question. And then finally, it's true. of So I think this is what, one major thing. So my experience actually of interacting, you know, I used to work at the European Central Bank. My experience 
of working with regulators, supervisors, that they are very competent. Um, I don't believe, I mean, there are instances, obviously, but I don't believe they are particularly uh, captured or bribed or whatever. Um, in some cases, they might be a bit biased towards, you know, I don't know, in France, sometimes, you know, some French regulators, they think it's their role to support the French banking system because it's important for the country, da, da, da. So you could call that a form of intellectual capture, perhaps. But, you know, there are people who are competent and, and mean well um, in general. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they need to be reminded of the big picture. And so that goes with interacting with academics. For instance, you know, last week I was at a conference organized at the ECB on research in banking supervision. It's exactly the right thing to do. So, you know, to to interact, you know, with, with academics who know the details much less. So they're happy to learn them from the regulators and they can bring some, you know, naivety, which is actually good because, you know, by asking very simple questions like, but why is deposit insurance not better priced or whatever, you know, regulators can say, oh, okay, actually, that's a good question. <laughs> we, had, we had a bit forgotten about this. Uh, and finally, what you say about political influence and so on, I mean, that's, of course, also true. I mean, you know, part of the SVB and signature debacle, I mean, there are some things that are a bit uh, worrying. So, you know, at the, what came out in the press is that, for instance, at, uh, that, you know, Barney Frank of the Dodd-Frank Act was, you know, on the on the board of signature. Uh, so that, that's a bit strange and was actually advocating, you know, for less regulation for, for this type of bank. The, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank was also on the board of, of directors of the San Francisco Fed, which was the supervisor of Silicon Valley Bank. That's, you know, by design in the US, that's the way it works. There are a number of things like this. I, I don't know. I mean, they do play a role. Is that the, you know, is that the major reason why we have problems in regulation and so on? I'm not so sure, uh, but it's difficult to provide scientific evidence either way. But the impact is definitely negative, but, you know, the quantitatively, I wouldn't know. Yeah, and I, I think to, to add to that and, and to be fair to the regulators as well, I think you're exactly right. It seems to me that we have huge amount of interconnectivity. We have uh, mon faster and faster money movements, capital movements. And the, the more the integrated the system Again, you need this consensual. Uh, uh, there's a consensual nature to the regulation that's adopted. Although you have a few kind of super players that can use supernatural powers. I mean, the U.S. can set something and say you have to follow these rules or you can't bank in the U.S. And then mm -hmm. kind of everybody goes into line. But it seems like, to the extent that politics is playing a role, to the extent that you have not you know brown envelopes full of cash exchanging hands, but you have these kind of interconnections at the organizational level between people who are in the private sector and the public sector, and you have inherent conflicts of interest and things like this, each country is going to have a super complicated system like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine if if I did a deep dive into the into you know conflicts of interest within the regulatory regime and finance in France, I would spend a lifetime doing this. In the same way if I was in the US or you know, or, uh, you know, Italy or uh, Vietnam or whatever it might be, right? And so each country is going to have these massive, I don't know, uh, kind of gravitational distortions, let's say, of what a rational regulatory environment would be, look like. And then you interconnect all those systems together and suddenly some relationship with a bank in France is going to impact me as a depositor in a bank in Germany, let alone in the US or wherever it might be. So I think that you 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 have the inherent problem of the intertemporal problem. Do I solve this problem? And it's going to sow the seeds for problems in the future, as we've already discussed. So that's already a really hard problem for the for the regulator. And then also you get this this almost infinitely complex system that we don't really understand how it works input output kind of thing and so you get you get a problem so here's here's one i mean does that make sense to you i mean is, is that yeah a lot i i like the idea of the gravitational pull but by the way this is also the case in many other industries i think that it's just you know the rule that we like free markets we know there are market failures so we need regulation as well for regulation to operate well, you need to talk a bit with the industry because, you know, they are the experts after all. And 
you know, doing that correctly without the industry having too much power either, that's very delicate. It's also a political question and so on and so on. I think in finance, what is a little bit specific is that, you know, you can, you have the, the opportunity to, in a sense, to, uh, um, you know, to extract subsidies from the public sector in a way which is not transparent at all and that non-experts are not going to understand. And so, yeah. you know, if you lobby in the car industry and, and you lobby for, uh, I know, you know, lower safety rules or whatever, everybody understands what's going on, right? Yeah. So if you lobby for complicated changes in, in the way that deposit insurance is priced, you know, you might actually extract implicitly dozens of billions of dollars from the public budget and nobody's going to see and nobody's it. going to know because it's something that's complex which leads me uh maybe to our last question and it's an issue close to my heart and your heart um we've talked a little bit about you know learning about the banking regulatory system the financial regulatory system and and if we think a little bit about curriculum in business schools right um if if you if you put on you know required course banking regulation I mean, not a lot of people get very excited about this. This isn't a super sexy topic. But in fact, we spent a huge amount of time talking about how finance works within this regulatory framework. But we don't spend almost any time on the framework itself, how it's constructed, how it's implemented. So if you could add a required course, let's say, to all executive MBAs, mm -hmm. uh, would it be kind of banking regulation? And if so, so, so that's something that we need to spend more time on. What would you substitute it for? Because it's kind of a zero-sum game. What What do you think we spend maybe more time than we need to? And what do we spend less time than we need to? That, that's a tough question. We are going to make a lot of enemies. <laughs> so, so first, I'm not I'm not sure the demand for this is is that low. So actually, I teach you know I teach a course called Banking Regulation in in, in the Executive Master in Finance at HEC. Also, it was offered in the Executive MBA. And I just got very good evaluations for this course. Maybe the fact it was the day after the failure of SVB played a role, but you know, still it means there is some some interest. Um, to be honest, I, I'm not sure. So you know, this course I teach it's eight hours, so it's not it's, it's not super long. I don't think you need uh, a lot, uh, and. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to tell you, you know, which are the courses in the executive MBA that I don't like and we should suppress because, you know, that's I'm not going to make many enemies. But maybe I think beyond that, the way I also see, you know, these banking regulation courses is that it's a bit of an excuse often to simply think about what finance is about, right? So for for an economist, you know, before talking about regulation, you know, the, the steps should be, okay, why do we need banks why do we need finance in the first place right so why is it good for society and so for banks you know we started with this idea of maturity transformation you know we need to use these very liquid deposits to fund some long-term projects that's actually good once you have this you can think about okay but what are the issues you know is it okay to have everybody acting freely or mm. or what can happen or oh, there can be crises and there can be inefficient behavior and so on for this we need regulation and so just you know when I teach this material, also in, in pre-experience uh, programs, I think the most important part is this, actually. For, for yeah. people, you know, to just pause for a moment and say, okay, you know, what is my job about, like, from a social perspective, right? Yeah. So, in particular, I think there is a tendency for many students, you know, to, to simplify way too much and think, okay, you know, there is evil finance and then there is ESG, which is good. And, yeah. and, and you know, ESG is very good, that, that's okay, but, you know, the, all the rest done well is socially incredibly useful. Okay, so having good banks, markets that work well, uh, you know, good funds that help people save for retirement. I mean, I, you know, it's it's impossible to you know to 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 overstate you know how how important this is, and so th that this works correctly and that people know you know what is fundamentally their job about. I think this is super important. So. I guess my answer you know, very quickly should be, um, I think what's the most important is the way we teach finance. I think the good finance courses are taught by people who, you know, they teach the methods, they teach the institutions and all this is super important, but they help students see the big picture behind this and, and why this is socially important and why the job that people will have afterwards, you know, brings value to society. And, and, and you know, you, you make money as a result as well. That's very good, but you know, 
it's you know you can be proud of what you do if it's done well basically yeah well and in addition to that i mean i i completely agree with everything that you just said i couldn't agree more but i also in addition i would say by focusing on these issues you see that the idea of a free market is a fiction that markets are constructed and they're constructed by the state and they, and they have to have state uh, regulatory functions in order for the market to work and that this this idea that oh the state is a kind of hindrance to everything the state can be a hindrance it can completely screw everything up but you don't it is not like you have a free market that is independent from the state that 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 the rules matter, and that the rules of the market are have to be set into place. And if you do that right, then all of those good things that you talked about can flow from the from the correct kind of architecture of a financial system. Does that make sense? No, totally. I, I totally agree with, with with that. I mean, we we know that markets are social. Even you know, even even stock markets. You know, they are they are fascinating. Even sociology books. You know about. All the sociology of stock markets, the size that traders use, all the implicit rules, and I mean, anybody actually with a finance professional understands this. Actually, yeah. that you know we are very. Fa- but that's not a contradiction actually with you know models in which markets are perfect and so on. It's just you know one tool to think about them, yeah. uh, like like others. And you know, very often I'm asked, you know, do you think there is too much regulation or too little regulation? I think it's no. It's you know what is the right regulation? So just. There are always issues that we can fix, you know, and we just need to improve regulation, like we need to improve, you know, all the time, every everything we do, basically. Yeah, and you start with the goal. So, what what is the goal that the regulation is meant to achieve? And those goals are usually kind of essentially political questions, social questions. Okay, look, you've been so generous with your time. One final question we ask each of our uh, guests on the show. What's a book, movie, podcast, play you've consumed in the last year you'd recommend to our listeners? It can be fiction, nonfiction, fun, serious, anything at all. <laughs> okay. Um, well, like many economists, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big nerd, so I'm a, I'm a fan of science fiction. So in particular, I read Terra Ignota by uh, Ada Palmer. I really recommend it. Very, I like, you know, very, very, very long sci-fi series that one is very good so i really recommend it it's very fascinating in terms of non-fiction and just you know to mention because we talked a lot about you know banking and the place of politics and so on and so a book about this which is quite fascinating is uh fragile by design by calomiris and haber it's very good i I don't necessarily agree with you know everything that they say because they speculate a lot about various things but it's, it's very very entertaining and a lot of food for thought yeah, that's a great book. And, and you get a lot of moments where you put down the book and you go, okay, I got to think about that. <laughs> do, <laughs> yes. do, do I agree with that? Do I not agree? But it's 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 super thought-provoking. Jean-Edouard, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Very interesting. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.